O leaders of the apostles and teachers of the world, intercede with the Master of all, that he may grant peace unto the world and to our souls his great mercy. Welcome to our Bible study on 1 Corinthians once again. We are in uh, chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians. Um, Last time we made it through uh, verse 8. And we covered, we spent most of the time last time to catch you up if you weren't here last time. Uh, We spent most of our time on verse, uh, really verse 7 through 8 which is a really neat little section that can easily slip by us, where he talks about the hidden wisdom of God. Um, And that's kind of a theme that runs through this part of the um, epistle. He's talked about the cross of Christ, and now he's talking about wisdom. The cross of Christ is kind of this for one thing, the hidden wisdom of God, because it doesn't make sense, the cross of Christ, to people that are in the world. But to those who have been baptized and accepted Christ, the cross of Christ is the wisdom and the power of God. We call Christ himself, we call him the wisdom of God, actually. That's kind of a name, actually, for Jesus is the wisdom of God. So you can capitalize W there as a a title for Christ. And there's actually a feast day in the church that is uh, for the wisdom of God. Sophia is the word in Greek. Um, And so many people named Sophia are actually for the Saint Sophia, the martyr. But there's also a feast in the church that is for the wisdom of God. He is uh, the, the wisdom of God, the Sophia, um, which is kind of this super wisdom, this divine wisdom. Um, and that, that feast actually is um, halfway between Pascha and Pentecost. There's a feast called Mid-Pentecost, which is we read the gospel of Jesus as a 12-year-old boy going into the temple and teaching uh, the Pharisees and everyone is amazed at his wisdom as a boy, which is recognizing, obviously, that this is Christ. This is God uh, speaking to them. Um, and so there's a beautiful icon of that feast uh, with Christ as a boy in the middle and all of the elders listening to him, which is this interesting event that happens before he begins his ministry, that he's, he's with them. So that feast of, of the holy wisdom of God reminds us of, of Christ as the wisdom of God. And so the famous, famous church in Constantinople, Agia Sophia, which was the cathedral of the patriarch right in Constantinople, that church celebrates its feast day when it was, when it was a church, celebrates its feast day on that day, mid-Pentecost, the holy wisdom of God. So it's actually quite a big feast day back in the day, um, and the church of Hagia Sophia would celebrate that day. 
Um, anyway, so this is one of the, the things that's being spoken about is this hidden wisdom of God, the hidden wisdom of God. And the reason Paul is talking about this is that many of the people that he's talking to, being pagan Romans, were part of mystery cults, which is something that you run into if you read uh, you know, literature, ancient Roman and Greek literature, the mystery cults kind of going and getting some secret wisdom from a uh, what are they? What are they? A shrine or a, a temple of the god is kind of this what you would call gnostic or hidden wisdom of the world. Who knows what exactly they would? I mean, I think of there's some groups that have existed even even today, like the Masons, that kind of have that oh, that sort of idea that you you get higher and higher in the levels, you get more wisdom about the world. Um, and so Paul is, is kind of speaking to people that are used to this kind of, oh, I feel special because I have this wisdom of God, I, I have this hidden wisdom, this Gnostic wisdom. And he's saying that the true wisdom of God sounds like foolishness to that. The true wisdom of God is hidden in the mystery of the cross. So for those who are baptized and are beginning to live a life uh, in Christ, they begin to see this wisdom, which the wisdom really is he who lays down his life in love for another person, that person is the most powerful and the most wise. That whoever wants to save his life should lose his life, which is a saying of the Lord, which sounds backwards. In order to save your life, you have to lay down your life for, for another, um, in, in love for another person. So this is kind of, it's wisdom, but it's, it's hidden because it doesn't make sense to worldly-minded people. The kind of selfless love and care and the embracing of the cross that we uh, have in, the, in our Christian faith. So this is what he's speaking about is this wisdom of God. Um, this knowledge of God, you could even say. For us, knowledge of God um, is... The, the goal to get to know the person of Christ through the sacraments, which are called the mysteries of the church. Because we don't quite understand how the bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ or how the water of baptism is effectual for salvation. It doesn't make sense in a way. It's a mystery. It's a relationship to draw closer to. So this is the, the hidden wisdom um, and also, in, in these verses here, he, as we mentioned last time, when he talks about this hidden wisdom, he says it's the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, this secret wisdom. If you were here last time, we talked about this wisdom of God being he had a plan for the salvation of people, which was to be born and to die on the cross. That was his plan from the beginning, to be born and die on the cross. This is his wisdom and his plan, which looks like foolishness because it's death on the cross. Um, but he says none of the rulers knew about it because if they had known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And we spoke last time how there's a double meaning to this. In the one hand, he's talking about the scribes and Pharisees, the leaders of the nation of Israel, um, that if they had known that this was their Messiah, they would not have crucified him. But because it was hidden from them, 
they fulfilled God's plan. So it was almost in his plan that it was hidden. This was in his providence. Knowing that they would choose not to see it, he allowed this so that his plan could be fulfilled to die on the cross. But then the second, so that's one level, is the, the, the leaders of the nation of Israel didn't know that this was the Lord of glory, because if they had known, they would not have crucified him. That's what he's saying here. But then we talked about that there's this very interesting hidden level here, or uh, to us, we don't see it at first, that what he's talking about is when he says the rulers of this age, that's a reference to demons. And the Lord of glory is a reference to Christ being victorious over his enemies, which are the demons. So what he's talking about here, I think even more than than talking about the Jewish people, is talking about the demons did not know the plan of God to die on the cross. Because if they had known, they would not have inspired the people to crucify the Lord, right? Because if they had known that he was the Lord, they would not have crucified him. Because by crucifying him, they invited him into their realm, and he then destroys the power of the demons. So this is what he's saying here, that he overthrew the demons by trickery and deceit. Like the demons had tricked people at the beginning of time with Adam and Eve being deceived. Now the Lord tricks the demons and defeats them. And he becomes, he is the Lord of glory. His glory is hidden while he's alive. But once he descends into Hades and rises from the dead, this is the glory and the power of God. Which for those that don't believe and don't have the spiritual eyes, looks like the Lord was defeated on the cross. Looks like foolishness, looks like weakness. But for us who believe in the resurrection, we know his power is revealed on the cross. And he says that in, before he dies, he says that I will be lifted up and glorified. This is the moment of glory of the Lord is when he's raised up on the cross. This is not a moment of defeat. This was his plan. This is his moment of glory. And that's why we glory in the cross of Christ, because through the cross, joy has come to all the world, because we're, we're defeated, we're, we're liberated from sin, death, and the devil by the cross. So this was just, just to, to bring us up to speed with all of that. Does anyone have any, any questions there with all that? It's almost like... Um... I mean, it sounds like to me that um, God picked all of those people back then mm-hmm. to be as they were, mm-hmm. to show us uh, um, they didn't really have a choice. Yeah, yeah. Well, obviously they always have free will, right? Well, but he does say he does say about them, uh, while he's on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Right. They, don't, they don't see what it's, they're doing. Because God has put mm-hmm. them all in place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For, it is, for us. Exactly. For, for us to know. It's, it's a challenge when you understand, and we talked about this a little bit last time too, like human free will right. is such a mystery. Because mm-hmm. sometimes it does seem like some people are just blind to God or blind to faith. Right. Mm -hmm. And no matter how many times you hit them over the head with a Bible, 
it doesn't sink in. No, you shouldn't hit them with, over the head with the Bible. But no matter what you do or what you say, hi, Pam, nice hi. to see you. Sorry, I got stuck on 19. No problem, there's oh, some traffic. So some people just, I mean, as a priest, I can tell you, and you've seen it, I'm sure, each one of you, that some people have faith in Christ. It seems to come naturally somehow. And for other people, they just don't see it. And why, what is going on there? You don't know the mystery of that person, why they feel that way. But we know and we believe that God can work in their heart, that he still loves them. We don't see the secret relationship they may have with God. I mean, I have, I have an uncle, for example, my, my mom's brother, who is like the best human being you'll ever meet. Like he's just up there with just the nicest people. And, and as this, this should be evidence enough. I, when I was going to seminary, he drove with me across the country from Seattle to Boston because uh, he lived in Seattle at the time. So he drove across country with my uncle. The whole time, he never complained. He never was grumpy. He was just cheery and happy. And you know, when you road trip with someone, you get to know them. And this, and this uncle was just the sweetest, nicest, most accommodating person, like travel companion you'd ever want to have. But, you know, he doesn't believe in God. He just doesn't... He's just, I mean, we would talk to him. He's just like, I just don't have that gene, he would say. <laughs> and I, it's a mystery. It's, it's a complete mystery, you know. It's just somehow not there. And um, I don't know. There, there's parts of Scripture where it says that God has blinded their eyes. Not that, he doesn't, not that he doesn't want them to see, but from our perspective, it looks like some people just can't see it. At least now. You never know that maybe sometime in this life, Something will, and this definitely happens with people as well. You know, I've, I've run into people that are at the top of their career. You know, PhD, research, all this, all these things. And they come to the church and they say, I just realized, I woke up and I realized there's something missing in my life. And they start coming to church every Sunday. You don't know. Something, <laughs> something uh, flicks on. It kind of gives us humility that it's not... It's, it's God working in these people. And obviously, when, when each person dies, then they can see. And, and then it's all revealed to them. And we know God is merciful in that moment. So anyway, any other thoughts about, about that part? There's, there's certainly some mysterious kind of things here. The, the hidden wisdom of God. Is that hidden? hidden in a different way than the, the pagan cults would have been hidden? Mm-hmm. Like, is there different kinds of hidden? <laughs> yeah. I think with the, 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 the pagan cult, well, it's a whole, there's a whole, it's a, it's a great question. I, I think that for the pagan cults, there was like initiations and, you know, some of it is just knowledge. Yeah, and the knowledge that they kind of give is maybe strange or, I don't know, make you feel proud about it in different levels. This hidden wisdom of God is hidden right in front of us, in a way. It's very, it's kind of very simple to lay down your life, to take up your cross and follow Christ. I can say that's the hidden wisdom right there. But then, of course, whenever you encounter that, 
this is a personal journey that people are on to come to know the wisdom of God. And when we say to know the wisdom of God, we're not talking about this. And this is this is the core here. You could say we're not talking about understanding some hidden mystery of the world. When we come to know the wisdom of God, like I said before, wisdom is a proper noun. It is a person. To know the wisdom of God is to know Christ. And so it is a mystery, that knowledge of Christ, that relationship with God. But that's what we mean by it. In the pagan, what we mean, to, to know God, that's, that's to know the wisdom, to know Christ. But for another aspect of how the pagan saw it um, is this idea that, um, and you see, it, you see it throughout the Old Testament, that before Christ came, we were subject to the demons, is how, how the apostles saw it. We're under the dominion, the people are under the dominion of the demons. And they're kind of kept under the dominion of the demons. And the demons, at different times, would reveal things to people that would uh, be to their destruction. Um, so you see this way back in Genesis, where you have the sons of God and the daughters of men, it says, and that, that the understanding of what's kind of happening there, there's this kind of fall of people, that, that, that the demons are giving knowledge to the people that the people aren't ready for yet. That's all the way back in, in the Garden of Eden. The devil tempts Adam and Eve, how? By saying, you can get to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Not that the, and he basically says, the Lord wants to hide this knowledge from you, but I'm going to show it to you, right? The Lord doesn't want to hide it. He says, you're not ready to see this yet. You're not ready for this uh, thing yet. And the demons are trying to give it to us before we're ready, which is an interesting thing to think about. If you look at, at history, some people would say that every time a technology is revealed to the people, a lot of times we use it to destroy each other, right? Whether it's, you know, people inventing iron and then starting to kill each other. So some people look back at, at the Bible and the text and say, a lot of these things were revealed by the demons, uh, you know, before people were ready for them. Uh, obviously, these things are interesting to think about. Um, but often we, we misuse the knowledge that we do have. AI, you could say, right? Are we ready for AI? God help us. <laughs> so a lot of the, the hidden wisdom sometimes was, was people getting knowledge of, of things that, that weren't uh, helpful, that, were, that seemed to make life easier, and that's the temptation to it, but end up creating more problems. You could say this, I mean, this is not, I'm not, obviously it sounds like iPhones or things, right? They seem to make life easier, but they lead to more problems in some ways. So some people will look back and say, every time you have a development of technology, you know, it kind of causes more problems at the same time. But, it, but people are tempted by it because there's this hidden knowledge, there's this laziness that comes with it or convenience. I mean, these are, these are, I'm not saying that technology is bad, don't get me wrong, because you can, everything can be used for good, but often it's not always used for good. So anyway, just a thought. Yeah. Um, that 
knowledge that wisdom is personal to each individual. And I think there's sometimes a temptation to try to explain it to others. Mm. Um, and when you mentioned that example about your uncle, mm-hmm. uh, some people who are not believers will question you. And there's, it's a difficult thing to... I just wonder if you have any guidelines for how to share yeah. something so personal, you know, without sounding like you're trying to convert someone. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, what comes to mind, I think we mentioned this last time as well, is that story of uh, Philip and Nathaniel, where he doesn't understand, he doesn't see what's going on until uh, Philip says, come and see. In other words, he doesn't try to convince Nathaniel of all these things. He just says, I've had this experience. Come and, and see with me. So I, I feel like the, the best kind of witness, and I, I, think, I think the, yeah, I think the best kind of witness is simply saying our experience. You know, I was blind and now I see. You know, to kind of share that with people. Um, and let them ask questions and let them kind of be hungry and thirsty for it. Um, but if we stick with our experience, simply saying, this is how, this is where I'm at, that's the most kind of honest and genuine thing we can do. And if people want to hear more, they do. If people don't, then it's okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Does that answer your, your question or... All right, so the next, the next part he says, uh, he says, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. So St. Paul is, is quoting something here. But what's interesting about this quote is that we don't know where the quote is coming from. In other words, this quote is nowhere else in the Bible. So we don't know if this is something that the Lord said that wasn't written in the Gospels, which is possible, because St. John says in the end of his Gospel, this is just some of what Jesus said. If everything were to be written, I suppose the whole world could not contain the books that would be written. So this could be a saying of the Lord, um, it's also quoted by other early epistles. The Epistle to Clem, uh, of Clement also quotes this as well. And it's a beautiful um, passage, just for your nerdery, I guess you could say. It's, it's an amalgamation of several passages from the Old Testament, from Isaiah, Jeremiah, and the wisdom of Solomon. Um, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. Um, and and when, he's, when he's saying into the heart of man, this is the very deepest part of man. That, And this is, this is going to be a beautiful part of what he's talking about because if you, if you read this part, obviously he's talking about heaven, right? You could say that these are the things that, that God has prepared and that we can't even imagine what heaven is like we, we can't imagine it there's analogies to this world the lord always is saying the kingdom of heaven is like a banquet 
the kingdom of heaven is like uh, a grain of mustard seed that grows into an incredible thing, right? So you, there's analogies that we have, but what the kingdom of heaven is truly like when we're no longer constrained by this world, when we can see the Lord face to face, we don't know what that is. We, we can have glimpses and sneak peeks in this world of the kingdom of heaven, but we don't truly know uh, what it's like. And we, we get glimpses of it in this world. And that's part of that relationship with God, that getting to know the wisdom of God, is that as we get closer to God, we can see the kingdom of heaven a little bit more. See it not with our physical eyes, obviously, but with, uh, with our hearts. And so we see it, we have little manifestations in this world. You see a sunrise, and it's a kind of a, a divine thing. Or see something beautiful, hear a beautiful piece of music, it lifts the soul, and you can kind of touch something beyond this world. There's something you can't quite describe that's a, a, a feeling. And also when we, when we come together and worship together in the liturgy, this is a revelation of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God coming to us. And depending on the condition and state of our hearts, we can see it more or less. Some people can see angels during the liturgy, that they, they can really see what's happening. Um, and some people just hear the kids crying, and that's okay too, because, because God works in different ways for all of us. But the reality going on around us all the time, really, not just in the liturgy, every moment is liturgical. Every moment we can connect with the kingdom of heaven. There's always this closeness with the kingdom of heaven. We may not feel it, but it's always there. Uh, and sometimes it breaks through. Um, so obviously this is this little part is him talking about uh, the kingdom of heaven, um, which is described throughout the scriptures in these beautiful ways. Um, for example, in the Old Testament, I believe it's in Daniel, 10,000 times 10,000 stood around him and thousands of thousands ministered to him and cried, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of Sabaoth, the whole creation is filled with his glory. Um, and in, in one of the other epistles of Clement, which didn't make it into the, in the scriptures, but is an early writing of the church, that admonishes us and says, let us therefore, uh, gathering together in harmony, in the liturgy, gathering together, cry out earnestly with one mouth that we may be partakers of this glory. So this is what we're called to, to be with the thousands and ten thousands around the throne of God. Um, um, so let's see. Um, so this, this passage here is, is you know, in, in one way, if you read it, it, eye has not seen nor ear has heard. These things are inaccessible. But the very next thing that he says after this, when he says, these things are beyond our comprehension. He then says, God has revealed them to us through his spirit. So this is, this is amazing to think that, that heaven is something inaccessible. We don't understand. We, don't, we can't comprehend. But through the spirit of God, 
God has broken down the division between heaven and earth. God has revealed this to us by his spirit. Um, and that's an, that's an incredible thing to think about, that, that heaven isn't just something that we're meant to wait for. It's not something where we're just simply trudging through life and hope to get to heaven someday. That heaven is something to begin to experience even now, in little ways, even in our prayers, in our time together, that heaven is accessible now, which was not the case before the Lord came into the world, to be honest with you. Before the incarnation of Christ, heaven was closed and inaccessible, and people did have the kind of having to wait uh, attitude, right? We have to wait to get this. And, and, and in the epistles, too, it says, you know, all of the people throughout the whole Old Testament, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, none of them received the promise of the kingdom of heaven because they were waiting for us. They were waiting for Christ to come to experience it. So now that Christ has come, this is the, the whole human condition has been changed the whole human condition at the incarnation, the fathers of the church say, at the incarnation, the whole of humanity, whether they believe in God or not, is elevated by his incarnation, which makes sense. God comes to the world. Of course, the world is changed. And not only is it changed, but the, the potential, uh, even in this life, of uh, participating and experiencing the kingdom of God is, is now present where we shouldn't, be, we shouldn't be surprised by miracles, by wonderful things, because this is, this is what God has opened up by him coming into the world. Um, okay, any thoughts or questions there in terms of, again, this is in the theme of, of hidden wisdom, that God is revealing even heaven to us, to those that have that relationship with him as we draw closer in relationship to him. This hidden, even heaven itself, becomes revealed to us. Okay, any, any thoughts or questions there? Who wants to see heaven some, someday? Who wants to see heaven now? <laughs> That's why we're here. This is good. Well, I, I mm-hmm. think everyone has felt that a little bit, but it's nice to hear it put to words. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that... When the change came, also. Mhm. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it makes it makes looking at the Old Testament tricky, because things were completely different in the Old Testament. We don't quite understand what it was like to live in the Old Testament. So you read the Old Testament and you hear crazy things. A lot of it's because, like we said, first of all, the world is in bondage to the demons in a very real way that we don't quite see now how people were subjected to the demons in ways that aren't possible now, you could say. Um, Well, it was in ways that they reactive, interacted with the mm-hmm. people around them. Yeah. 
and stuff. And uh, you, there is some of the there's a priest, Father Stephen DeYoung, that has a podcast on a lot of these things. I I I, will, I don't even want to repeat some of the things that <laughs> the Old Testament that the demons yeah. inspire people to do that make them one one with the demons in right. ways that are crazy. Um, that probably happened to some degree now, but as a wholesale, like the whole different nations were like this. So, I mean, it's a, it's a tricky thing to say, but you, you could kind of almost say that when the Israelites, it's one of the, the tricky parts of the Bible is, is all the killing that happens in the Old Testament, where the Israelites are told to kill all of these people. In, in a way, if you look at understanding that this is before the incarnation of Christ, that that people are um, very fallen because of the fall. And the fall also means separation from God, two things, separation from God and being ruled by the demons, where now we're brought closer to God by the incarnation and the demons have been defeated by the cross and the resurrection. So in the Old Testament, this is not the case. These people are so uh, enslaved by the demons that, that I think it's safe to say that by killing them is almost a deliverance, is a deliverance from the evil of the world. And, and St. James in his epistle says, don't worry about all the people that died in the Old Testament. Like that was a mer- mercy for them because Christ later came and brought them out of Hades. All these people that suffered under the dominion of Christ is the healer. And so when he sees the people suffering, um, this is a mercy. So we shouldn't think that all the people before Christ went to hell and are terrible people and all this. We don't know how God judges them, but we know that they were suffering under the dominion of the demons. So we hope that every person is saved, even Ahab, or you take classic Old Testament villains, right? Well, at the same time, there was interspersed in between all of these mm-hmm. bad people. Mm-hmm. There were good people mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that God led. They, uh, God used them to mm-hmm. help make the next generations mm-hmm. better. That's right. And that's right. Each generation became better and better. Yeah, I think that's definitely true because. When Abraham gets called at a certain place right. and is told, you, you guys are going to be my people. I'm going to create my people. The demons control these different people, but the Lord is choosing the nations. Or Lord, Lord is choosing Israel. And, the, and he says, the gods of the nations are demons, but the Lord, the God of Israel, is the one true God. And so that's the point of him doing that, is to prepare a people Eventually, until you get to the Virgin Mary, until the world is ready to receive uh, the incarnate Christ. And then, you know, so you have the people of Israel that are God's people, and you have all the other nations that are ruled by the different demons, right? This is kind of the landscape of the world at the time of Christ. But with with the death and descent into Hades of Christ, the demons are defeated, where it even says the Lord is going to judge the nations, meaning the Lord is going to judge the rulers of the nations, which are the demons. And the demons are judged and are bound. And so the, the, the position of the apostles 
And this is this is kind of different than you may you may think of it. But but the the mission of the apostles then is to go to these nations that have been ruled by the demons and to say, your gods have been overthrown. The demons have been defeated. The Lord has has opened all of the people, all of the nations are now being claimed for the Lord. And the, and the apostles go and perform these wonderful signs and miracles and show the, the nations that their demons are no longer powerful. They kind of have wrestling matches, my God versus your God. Like St. Patrick in Ireland is a classic example. We call him equal to the apostles because like one of the apostles, he was a little later, but he went into the nation of Ireland and went head to head with the Druids. This is, this is kind of, we, we, you know, you, you read the texts of Patrick fighting against the Druids, and it's very much like, like the, the god of Patrick versus the god of the Druid priests. Let's fight. <laughs> and obviously the Lord prevails because he has sent Patrick and he has defeated the demons. So they like walk through the fire together, the Druid priest and Patrick, and the Druid priest is burned up where he used to be preserved, but the demons no longer have power. And Patrick walks through the flames and everyone says, Patrick's God is the one true God. And that's how they come to faith in God in a very dramatic kind of way. Seeing that their demons are now powerless, it's easy to convert. That's how you have a conversion of a whole ton of people because the ancient people were very much into their gods. And once their gods are no longer powerful, then they'll worship the new God, which in this case is the one true God. Uh, so it's, a, it's an interesting way to look at, at, at the world and at the mission of Paul even in the context of the Corinthians is to convince them that, that God is powerful, that, that all, these, all these demons are, are fake, <laughs> are, are powerless. Okay, so he says, God has revealed them to us, these mysteries, to us through his spirit, the Holy Spirit enlightening our hearts. And we believe, obviously, that in the sacraments, it's the Holy Spirit that's making Christ present among us. So the Holy Spirit, as the Lord promised, is active and alive with us. Um, and it says, the Spirit searches all things. Yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Okay, so what's, what's happening there? So no one, uh, the spirit searches the heart. Okay, so that is a good message there. The Holy Spirit knows our heart. God knows our heart better than we do, you could say. The God, sometimes we don't even know what's in our heart until it comes out or until we encounter something and our heart does something that we weren't expecting in, in good and bad ways, right? But God knows our heart better than we can. Um, so that's one thing you can take from this, that God knows our heart. And also, um, it says, what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him. Okay, so... There's a level of hierarchy. We know our heart better than the person next to us, but God knows our heart even better than, than we do, right? So, so kind of saying that our own spirit can know our heart, but God's spirit knows our heart even better. 
So he goes on and says, even so no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. So that's an interesting, interesting thing to think about. The Holy Spirit knows because it is the Spirit of God, just like our own spirit knows our heart better than anyone else would. The Holy Spirit knows the things of God better than anyone else does. This is used, this one passage right here, um, that the, um, let's see, uh, that the, the Spirit of God knows God better than anyone else. This is used by St. Basil the Great and the Church Fathers to prove, or as a proof text, you could say, of the divinity of the Holy Spirit. That just as our spirit is part of us, so the Holy Spirit is one with God. The Holy Spirit is divine. So this is used in the Church Fathers later. A lot of, a lot of the epistles are used by the Church Fathers, and this is used for, to, to emphasize the divinity of uh, the Holy Spirit. Um, so that's an interesting, interesting thing is here. Um, and he says, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. So this is a contrast to, again, the pagans who are trying to become animated by the spirit of their God. This is part of the pagan religion that you have people that kind of take on the persona of the deity and act it out and have this kind of seance or possession in order to speak some wisdom or something like this, right? This is, this is a common thread in, in all pagan religions, actually. This kind of the, the shaman or the, the main person taking on the spirit of the demon to speak some wisdom that, that is a dangerous thing because it's most likely from a demon. Uh, and so this is common throughout all of, all of the Middle Eastern ancient pagan religions to even Alaskan pagan religions are like this as well. And uh, American, South American, a lot of these have this kind of thing. So Paul is contrasting, this, this is the kind of the ancient world view of things. Paul is contrasting this to say that we have the spirit of God. This is the Holy Spirit. This is the spirit that reveals things to us, the things of God, the things of the kingdom of God. Um, and so this is a theme that he'll continue to build on, that you are all possessed with the Spirit of God, or all have the potential to be possessed by the Spirit of God, which is what happened when the apostles are preaching in the Acts of the Apostles. You know, the Spirit of God is filling them, and at the descent of the Holy Spirit, everyone begins to speak in tongues, right? Paul is, is going to be talking a lot about this later about speaking in tongues, about possession by the Spirit, and how this differs in the Christian mindset from the pagan mindset. So really, he's kind of setting the theme here for what's going to be talked about, which is the Holy Spirit, and it's working in us uh, to reveal the mysteries of God, to bring us closer to God. Um, so we'll be going back to a lot of these themes uh, later, This is kind of the beginning. He's kind of saying his, his core beliefs about the Holy Spirit. He's saying the axioms about the Holy Spirit. We've received the Spirit. This is the Spirit of God. And this is the Spirit that reveals to us the things of God. 
and he'll talk about it later uh, in more in more detail. Okay, any any uh, thoughts or or questions there as we move right along? Yeah, no, go ahead, Joanne. Yeah. To a deity. To the, right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I think I think it's unmistakable that the yearning for a connection with the divine is is unmistakable. Um there's an interesting uh, uh book. It's very philosophical. I couldn't get through it. I started to take a class in uh seminary about about secularism, which is the way we understand secularism today is that there is no God, that you can live without God, that we can build a society where God is completely out of the picture. And God meaning not just our God, but anything divine and out of this world is done away with, that science can prove everything, that there's no room for the divine. And so this was a, this was a thought for a while but in, the, in research and sociology and things like that, even modern people have what they call, uh, they're haunted by the divine. Even the most secular people were still as a society haunted by the divine. There's still something that calls in us for a connection with something, with a connection with something above. Um, and I think, I think it's kind of a myth, obviously, to think that people can exist without that haunting and yearning. Uh, it's something in our DNA uh, as, as human beings. Um, and so, so, yeah, I mean, for the, for the ancient people, the gods, the, the demons, represented that higher uh, power for them, right? And, and really... Really, the, the, problem, the, the problem was, this is um, an interesting, again, an interesting way to look at the ancient world. But the, the problem was that when God, like God loves to delegate to people. It's something that you see. I mean, he has 12 apostles that he sends. He dies on the cross and delegates to the 12 apostles to go continue the work. This is not the first time that God delegates from the very beginning, the Lord creates angels that help govern the world, right? So the, the problem becomes that the Lord delegates to the angels, but then the angels fall. The angels have their own fall. And that's what the demons are, fallen angels, right? They're angels created by God that have fallen. So... One way I've heard it described is that a lot of the ancient, you know, peoples, they were given angels to rule over to, you know, to rule over to God. And, and an angel was given the task of guiding the people 
to the knowledge of God. But as the angels fall, a fallen angel, the characteristic is, don't worship God, worship me. And this is the problem, right? Worship me. I'm going to give you the power. You don't, I'm going to teach you a false idea about God. I'm going to teach you that God is actually the bad guy and I'm the good guy. The demons are saying this, right? This, isn't, this is something that's, that's throughout how you look at the ancient world, like Baal, which is the classic God that the Israelites are fighting against. If you look at the documents of Baal and Baal worship, um, a lot of it is God is a mean person, the one true God. He, was, he, was, he wronged me and sent me down here, but I'm really, I'm really just you know, the good person. God is the bad person. These are the kind of lies that the demons are telling uh, the people. Um, and so a lot of what the Lord is doing is overthrowing all of this delusion. <laughs> you're, you're actually worshiping a demon, <laughs> so stop and worship the one true God. Um, but yeah, that, that desire for, for God is, I think, is always, it's always there. Yeah, it's always, it always haunts people. I think, to be honest with you, even my uncle I talked about didn't, didn't believe in God. As we were driving across the country, we would talk. And he would get to this, we would talk about God a little bit. And he'd get to this place in talking and say something like, I just don't know. I just, I just doesn't, I don't know. And he'd kind of stop and get quiet as he was thinking about it. And it really seemed like he was kind of haunted by something that, that spoke to the human soul. That didn't, maybe didn't have a place to understand. But, and I, I think this is a beautiful thing because even... That, that desire for God, you know, God can use even that, even if, it, even if they don't look like Christians or don't act like Christians, people yearn for God. And God can use that yearning in ways that we don't see to reach them and touch, touch the people's hearts. It's a mystery. Like we said, who knows, who knows what's going on inside of them except for their spirit and the spirit of God. So why should we judge other people we don't know. We don't know their spirit. It's kind of foolishness to judge somebody's spiritual condition because, as he says, their own spirit knows the best or knows better than anyone, and God's spirit knows the best. So let's leave it to God and to them to, to see what will happen <laughs> with every person. So, okay. I guess we do have a couple more minutes. We're moving through... Uh, very quickly, so this is this is good. I, I have all these notes just to let you know, and and my folly maybe or well anyway, the uh, when I did this last time at Saint Spiridon, we went way too slow. We went so <laughs> slow, and so a lot of the notes I'm skipping over because it's just not you kind of lose the momentum if you go too slow. So we'll try to keep going. Um, so who wants to read the last few verses here? In verse 13 uh, to the end there. And then we can finish where, chapter 2. Where is this? 1 uh, Corinthians chapter 2. Chapter 2, 13. So right over here. Okay. Do you want to read it, Fran? Okay. These things we also speak not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches comparing spiritual things with spiritual. 
but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritually judged judges all things, yet he himself is right, judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have found the mind of Christ. Beautiful. As you see, the epistles are quite uh, dense. Yeah. There is a lot. <laughs> There's a lot there. And he just, he, I mean, you can, you can spend so much time. He takes these different themes and put them in. You see spirit coming in in different ways and knowledge and all these different th- themes coming together. But I think what can be, what can be said about this uh, part is that obviously Paul is preaching these, these things we speak. And we're not using words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit uh, teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. So Paul is preaching, and he's not necessarily making complete sense to them. He's allowing the Holy Spirit to instruct these people. Um, He's doing the best he can to describe this mystery, but allowing them to come to a knowledge of the mystery themselves in their hearts, allowing God to work in them, Um, comparing spiritual things with spiritual, which means kind of like looking at one part of the scripture and comparing it to another part. So he's using, they use the scriptures to try to convince people that this is, especially the Jewish people, to convince them that this is the one true God, that Jesus is the Messiah, but ultimately allowing the Holy Spirit to do the teaching of the people. Um, and then, and so he says, he's saying that some people get it and some people don't. It's kind of the theme here, right? Some people get it. It's kind of the theme today. Some people get it, some people don't. He says, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. So the, nat- the natural man is a term that Paul uses um, not for, uh, he's going to have several types of people. You have like the fleshly people that are kind of the bad people that are really attached to the flesh. That's not what you want to be. Then you have the natural people, which are not necessarily bad, but somehow don't get it yet. The people that are good by nature, but aren't good by God's grace yet. In other words, they haven't uh, connected with God. So that's what he's talking about here. And then obviously, so you have the fleshly man, the natural man, and the spiritual man. The spiritual man is the goal of all of us to be animated by the spirit. The others are animated by just nature, by the breath that we naturally have, or by the flesh and the desires of the flesh. So the natural man doesn't understand these things yet, right? Um, That they have natural man is kind of the person who has not accepted the Christian way of life, um, uh, but lives just a normal kind of life without God being the one animating them. Um, so the, the natural man does not understand these things, uh, does not receive the spirit of God. They, are, they will make sense to him, their foolishness. And he can't know them. He doesn't have that spiritual kind of revelation yet. Like the lights haven't been turned on yet. 
<laughs> Even Paul had this time in his own life, right? Where he was persecuting the Christians. And then all of a sudden, the light turned on and he got it. <laughs> so is that, excuse me, is that discernment or judgment? When you look at mm-hmm. the people around you mm-hmm. and you see mm-hmm. these different types. Mm-hmm. Is that mm-hmm. judgment or is that discernment? Yeah, it's a good question. The difference between discernment and judgment. Because we are supposed to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. So discernment is actually, I think, I believe the Desert Fathers say, discernment is one of the greatest spiritual virtues, the virtue of discernment. To have discernment being a virtue is something of God. In other words, the when you have... When, when, when you, th- you think about a holy person that has the Spirit of God, the discernment they're able to have, they're able to see things about life and about, you know, their minds are clear, which means that their minds are connected with God. So discernment is a, is a, a wonderful and holy thing. They're able to discern what's going on around them. They're able to see what's happening in the people around them, in the communities around them. They have a kind of vision of, of life because of their connection with God. So it's a wonderful thing to, to see that. But it's not something that they manufacture themselves. Right. When you try to manufacture discernment, you often end with judgment. Right. When you try to figure out who's what and what's going on and think about all these things, you end up judging people, which... Judgment, you know you've entered into it when your heart begins to turn cold towards another, right? Because a discerning person that has the virtue of discernment, they're not cold towards anyone. They just see what's going on. It doesn't somehow turn them cold towards that person. That's what we do when we try to be, uh, when, we, when we judge people, our heart turns cold towards them. Does that, does that make sense? The difference between discernment Discernment is a gift from God. So if you want discernment, you don't go around looking at different people and analyzing them. You pray. Discernment comes through prayer. And then God will show you the way. God will show you the things you need to say to the person, a person at the right time. He'll, again, it's the spirit of God animating a person through prayer. And that's where Paul is going with in this, in this whole thing, that the natural man doesn't have that discernment. He doesn't have the spirit to discern and see the world in the light of God. Uh, we always say, like in the doxology, in your light, we shall see. We shall see life. We shall see everything. So the one, the spiritual man with the Holy Spirit, these are the ones that can see the world. And we can begin, that should be our goal too, through prayer and through the light of Christ to be able to see the world as God sees it. Um, and he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. So again, judgment, it's not, it's not to be, trans, maybe judgment is not a good translation. Maybe it would be better to say, he who is spiritual discerns all things is, is kind of in the, in the vein there. But he himself is rightly judged uh, by no one. Who has the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. 
So that's, again, a goal that keeps coming up. Is He talked about it earlier when he talked about unity. That unity is achieved through having the mind of Christ. That Christ is the one animating our spirit. The Holy Spirit is animating us. The mind of Christ, it goes together. Animated by the, animated by the spirit and having the mind of Christ. So may this be our goal and our intent of our lives is to submit ourselves to conquer the flesh and our fleshly mind so that the Spirit of God can be the one to animate us and have the mind of Christ. Amen.